Good evening. It is great to be with you and to be able to share with you this evening. As uh, Dave said, Lindsay and I are from Romford, which is about uh, 15 miles east of Stratford, where there's a huge amount of development going on for some big sporting event taking place later in the year, something to do with the Olympics. Uh, so that's where we're from, and that is where we are headed back to this evening at half past nine. So forgive us if we uh, just rush out at the end of this evening, uh, uh, the service. Uh, we've had a, a great weekend, just a very restorative weekend, enjoying your beautiful country. The beach yesterday and the wind and the rain, is that usual here? And, uh, and a magnificent double rainbow. It was just an incredible thing where you could see the colours of this thing absolutely per- perfectly. It was fantastic. So, uh, without further ado, we are going to dive into this subject of gluttony. It seems appropriate after the, uh, the people on the DVD film there diving into uh, things and gorging ourselves on food. So we're going to look at the subject of gluttony. And... Uh, Continuing with this series of uh, the seven deadly, deadly sins, and I, I freely admit and confess to you that uh, before preparing for this evening, I hadn't really given a huge amount of thought to this subject of the seven deadly sins. But the more I thought about it, the more I realised that Dave's inspiration uh, was this programme, the Deadly Sixty. Put your hands up if you've seen this programme. Great, lots of children have and young people. I commend it to you like many programs. It's a children's program, but it's far better than many adult programs. uh, It's this guy who goes around the world looking for the deadliest 60 animals around the world. And so I commend it to you. And uh, it made me realise that these deadly sins, these seven vices, are called that for a reason. Just like deadly animals, these are the things that can destroy, kill even the Christian. And there are other animals, of course, there are other things, uh, and maybe their damage isn't so great. But these seven are the biggies, if you like. They're the ones that can inflict a lethal sting or bite or injection, which can be very damaging to us. So learning to address these seven things is really, really important if we want to flourish as disciples of Jesus Christ. And linked to this thing, particularly of gluttony, I think, is the, the season of Lent. Now, I don't come from a tradition uh, that really was into Lent and the practice of Lent, but certainly over the last few years, I've, I've uh, valued it even more and, and started to use it as a season in which God could do something within me if I let him. Uh, just put your hand up for me. Have, have any of you given anything up for Lent? Any, any brave people yet? Anyone taken anything up for Lent? Any new activities? Okay, one or two. That's good. Okay. Well, according to Facebook last year, this was the top 100 things that were given up by people. Some of those things are certainly easier to give up than others and more appealing to give up than others. And uh, if you have done anything for Lent, I commend you for your intentions. But I wonder if you are anything like me. Um, I've engaged in Lent in the past, but I've used it as an excuse to restart the New Year's resolutions that haven't gone well since January. Can anyone identify with that? You kind of think, right, okay, let's start again. And again, if you're anything like me, you get to kind of Easter and you've gone six weeks without chocolate and you think, okay, where is the chocolate? Bring on the chocolate. And you kind of want to make up for lost time. You know, you've got six weeks worth of chocolate to consume. And I get to that point and I think, what has been the point? What has this season of Lent all been about? 
Is all that I've managed to achieve the ability to abstain from chocolate or coffee, God forbid, for six weeks, only then to resume it and resume it with a vengeance? And so even though I've been a Christian for many years, I'm, I'm slowly learning about this stuff. And this sort of disquiet was confirmed within me uh, by our, our bishop in Chelmsford Diocese, which is where I work and operate, uh, when he said this, if you want to detox or diet, then that's fine. But don't be mistaken in thinking that it has anything to do with Lent. If you want to detox or diet, then that's fine, but don't be mistaken to think it's anything to do with Lent. And what he was saying is, actually, there's something more. There is something deeper, richer, uh, far more personal, if you like, that can go on during this season. And so what I'm learning is that simply giving up something for Lent is dealing with the externals, when actually God is far more interested in the bigger internal issues of my character and my heart. And while I'm sort of busily trying to deal with the image, God wants to do some heart surgery on me and I guess all of us and deal with the substance of who we are. And so if our forebears knew that these seven deadly vices or sins had an incredible power, I think they also knew that Lent was a God-given opportunity to sort of face off some of those vices, to confront them head on. And so as we consider gluttony this evening, I want us also to consider the challenge of Lent, for what is true of our forebears is also true of us. We need to confront some of these things, and Lent is a brilliant opportunity to do so. And especially to do with this issue of gluttony and food, because obviously that is, is what Jesus abstained from in those 40 days in the desert, and that's where we get the Uh, practice of Lent from. So Lent is an opportunity for God to do something within us that is much richer and deeper. He wants to change and birth something new in us. This is uh, maybe some of the stuff he wants to do. And that's my prayer, that as as I reach Easter in 2012, that something will have changed within me. God will have done something, even if it's just one degree of glory at a time. You know, something really small. I want to see some change in my life. And I would challenge you at the beginning, really. What is the beautiful, deep, rich thing that God wants to do or could do with you in this season of Lent? So, let's dive in to gluttony. This is a time when surely we can talk about the elephant in the room. Okay? This is an issue that we can talk about and face. And I want to say from the outset, I am someone who loves food. Okay, uh, and I guess many of you love food as well. And when Dave sent the email saying, "Would you be able to speak on gluttony?" I kind of thought there was a sense of irony in his uh, in his request. Food is a gift from God, and I would hate for you to go away this evening thinking that there's something intrinsically evil and bad about food. It's a gift, but like all gifts, it can be abused. So, in 2010 a survey was published in the Vatican newspaper, which is not something I'm in the habit of reading, I must say. Uh, But it was a study of the confessions of the deadly sins that had been made to Roman Catholic priests. And I'm tempted to ask you what you think the top confessions were uh, for women, but I'm not going to, I'm going to tell you. Well, does anyone want to guess? Top, Top confession for women. Anyone has to guess? 
Okay, there you go. Pride, envy and anger. And for men, it wouldn't take a lot of imagination. Lust is top of the list, (laughs) followed by gluttony and then sloth. Funny how those things are linked. So the truth is, this, this issue of gluttony is one for all of us to deal with. The Oxford English Dictionary defines a glutton who is someone as an extremely greedy eater, and gluttony is the habit of eating too much. And I, I want to throw in alcohol here as, as an issue as well, just to be upfront about that from the beginning. When preparing this, I began to think, is this a kind of niche vice, if you like? You know, um, the others, the other six, may affect us all, but actually how many of us would describe ourselves as extremely greedy eaters, or how many of us would want to do that, uh, who are in the habit of eating too much. But actually, the more I thought about it, um, the more I realised that actually the, the challenge with this gluttony stuff is do we have a healthy, balanced, godly attitude towards food and alcohol? Do we eat too much or too little? What is our relationship to food? Which sounds like an odd kind of question, but how do we engage with food? Food is a necessity, obviously, but the question this evening I want us to look at is how do we foster a godly relationship with food in which it is enjoyed but not abused? Now, the Bible is obviously uh, absolutely full of stories and references to food. Every book, virtually every book, has got some references to food. You can think about the manna in the wilderness, a land flowing with milk and honey, Jesus being described as the bread of life, the Last Supper. You know, the list goes on and on and on. And the Bible is also full of both feasting and fasting. And I think both of those uh, things are really important as we're trying to get to this healthy relationship with food. The very first Bible story that involves humans, interestingly, also involves food. In Genesis 2.16, Adam and Eve are given an invitation and an instruction to eat. God comes to them and says, "'You may eat freely of every tree in the garden.'" But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So in essence, they were offered a right way to eat and a wrong way to eat. And this instruction is then uh, manipulated by the serpent who comes along and says, Did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Eve repeats God's injunction and then the serpent responds, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so we, we know how the story goes. Woman, uh, Eve sees the tree and uh, eats of the fruit and gives stuff to Adam as well. But do you hear the seduction in the voice of the serpent here? Did God really say? What harm could this possibly do? This is going to make your life better. And that song that was so beautifully sung picks up on that theme really, the subtlety of how we can begin to compromise and slowly fade, if you like, into something, a place we didn't want to go. So this instruction that God has given to Adam and Eve 
becomes a temptation and kind of boom, you get the disaster, you get the fall. And whilst the fall is fundamentally about pride, it is about food and a wrong response to it, which is the means to that pride and greed. Now, the wonder of the story of Genesis is obviously not that it just, not that it happened, but it happens. You know, this, the story of Genesis is our story. It's the story of humanity. We have the same tendencies and weaknesses as Adam and Eve. And Jesus, who is the good shepherd, wants us to enjoy abundant life. Wants us to be healthy in all ways. But the thief, the enemy, the serpent, if you like, seeks to steal from us, to kill us and destroy us, often using the deadly seven. And the serpent's technique is just as uh, real and alive today as it was in the Garden of Eden. What harm is it doing? Excessive eating, gluttony, what harm is it doing? Now, now just a sort of cautionary note here, right? Please do not think that every time you are tempted to have another sausage roll or a chip, you know, you've got to sort of flick the devil off your shoulder. That's not what I'm saying, okay? But what I am saying is, in that choice is there freedom. Are you demonstrating a healthy, godly relationship to food and to the more or to the less? What is your relationship with food? Is it good or not so good? And if that temptation to eat to, to, to excess is true at a personal, personal level, it is even more true at a corporate level. In Western culture, and I'm emphasising Western culture here, we have a massively consumerised food industry. We've become very disconnected from food sources and food production. And we're bombarded by marketing images seducing us into ceaseless food consumption. We're sold a lifestyle. It won't harm you. When you eat of it, so the media people tell us, your eyes will be opened. Your life is going to be better if you succumb to this way of eating and being. Do you see the work of the enemy, the seduction, the beguiling voice? And so one of the consequences is that we now live in a culture which has food as a major preoccupation. Just consider the plethora of uh, TV programs about cookery and about food. We're obsessed with food. Never before has so much food been so freely available to most of us. You know, we have access to a huge amounts. We may well be in danger of, uh, be aware of the dangers of fast food. And the irony of the weekend is that uh, the four of us and Kristen ended up in McDonald's on Friday night buying a coffee and the guy somehow said, it'll be cheaper if you have a Happy Meal. And somehow we ended up with three Happy Meals. So, you know, we, we are danger, well aware of the dangers of fast food and the, you know, the golden arches or whatever it is. But what about food on the run? What about microwave meals and TV dinners? Without ever saying it, we live in a culture that rejoices in and celebrates gluttony and excess. We were in uh, Saffron Walden, which is a beautiful Essex town, just a few weeks ago, and I uh, took this picture of the Glutton's Cafe. Not only is it, you know, celebrating gluttonous behaviour, but where is the apostrophe in that glutton's <laughs> word, all right? 
I'm married to an English teacher. If you go into a harvest or one of those kind of types of restaurants, the, the message is eat as much as you like. Go back for more. I remember being in a harvester once and thinking, okay, I've done the salad, you know. God, that's enough. Where do I go now? You know, and you end up just feeling like some roly-poly person walking out. And so consequently, we've become increasingly obese, right? And obesity is a great concern in our children. We hear it all the time. And anorexia and other deceiting orders are more prevalent now than ever they have been before. And of course then linked to gluttony is our obsession with physical appearance, diet and fitness. You know, we love all that stuff. And this is the water in which we swim. And when you live in a particular culture, it's so difficult to see it sometimes. But I hope you can begin to see that gluttony, at first you think, well, what's that got to do with me, you know? But the more we think about it, the more we realise we live in this culture of excess. It's not for the other, it's for us. We need to address it in ourselves. And I freely confess to you this evening that without doubt this is an area of weakness in my life. I am one of the elephants in the room, okay? C.S. Lewis uh, famously said that the nearest Christians get to consistency is oscillation. You know, they live their lives like this. I don't know if that's your story. It certainly is mine. And that is true in many areas of my life, particularly in this uh, area of food. I'm either completely sanctimoniously, oh, I couldn't possibly have another, or I'm not. And, uh, you know, let's, let's have the whole packet of biscuits. I've started, I might as well finish. Am I a glutton, an extremely gl- greedy eater? Probably not. Do I have gluttonous tendencies? The habit of eating too much? Probably. Yes, I do. This quote by Graham Tomlin couldn't be more true, uh, and I don't say it with any sense of irony, in regard to gluttony. He says, we become like the things we worship, right? The things that preoccupy us. And if food is an obsession, we become like food in some way. But, he says, on the other hand, those who look towards the true God receive within themselves the characteristics of the divine nature. The soul is like a mirror which takes on the exact likeness of whatever it contemplates. So if we, whatever we spend time thinking about, that is what we take on board. And if we are obsessed with food and alcohol, then that's what becomes of us. And for me, I want to reflect the image of Jesus because that's who I worship. That's who I contemplate. And I don't want to look like what I eat. So, why then is this an important issue? What is so wrong in engaging in excess? Well, obviously there is a health issue at stake and we have to consider that. But for me, as I've already hinted at, this is fundamentally an issue of discipleship. This is a matter of seeking to follow the Master, Jesus, as the way the truth and the life. In his program for abundant, healthy living, why wouldn't you want to go the Jesus way? Because his way is the path of abundant, wonderful life. Early monks recognised that a correct approach to food marked the beginning of the spiritual life. Christopher Jameson of that program, The Monastery, said this, The way people handle food is a good barometer 
of their inner world. In the 1981 uh, UK census, a form was returned which, in answer to the question, occupation, stated, I am a sculptor of lions. So it sounds like a good job, doesn't it? To the next question, please describe the nature of the work done, the responder said, I chip away all the bits of stone that are not lion. Okay? It's a wonderful image. And this, quite honestly, for me, and maybe for some of you too, is a bit of stone that needs to be chipped away at in order that more of Christ can be revealed in me and I can become a mature disciple of Jesus. To look more like Jesus than the culture in which we exist and swim, we've got to address this issue. Another way of putting it is to say, in response to the vice of gluttony, is the fruit, the virtue of self-control, being grown in me as a fruit of the Spirit? Are we becoming increasingly food conscious, aware of eating, choosing both thoughtfully to eat or not eat? Are we in control of our appetites or are they in control of us? Do we have a godly freedom in regard to food and drink? Mother Teresa said that maturity is learning to be hungry. Maturity is learning to be hungry. And there's a whole load of stuff we could say about that, I guess. This is not fundamentally about diet, but it's understanding our whole relationship with food and drink. And neither is it simply about resisting temptation, not having that extra sausage roll, but it's about what God is doing in our character as we learn self-control. Learning to be self-controlled is profoundly about character development. Tom Wright, and you would get there, David, (laughs) um, said this, the temptations we face day by day and at critical moments of decision and vocation in our lives may be very different from those of Jesus, but they have exactly the same point. They are not simply trying to entice us into committing this or that sin, an extra sausage roll. They are trying to distract us, to turn us aside from the path of servanthood to which our baptism has commissioned us. God has a costly but wonderfully glorious vocation for each one of us. The enemy will do everything possible to distract us and thwart God's purpose. If we have heard God's voice welcoming us as his children, we will also hear the whispered suggestions of the enemy. Do you see, this is, this is about character and heart stuff. Not just saying, I'm not going to have any more, but what God is doing within us. Self-control is about character development. So if the issue is gluttony, and the antidote, if you like, is self-control, how do we learn that self-control? Graham Tomlin, again, says that disciples are made through disciplines. Disciples are made through disciplines and really the series that you're looking at is is in many ways a series of disciplines. Disciple discipline, they obviously come from the same root word and if we want to be good disciples of Jesus then there's got to be some degree of taking up some of these disciplines. And I want to suggest in relation to gluttony that as we follow Jesus there is both an element of feasting and fasting that develops self-control within us. Feasting, first of all. You'll be pleased to know... Do I go backwards? Can we go backwards? There we go. 
gone too far. There we go. So, Matthew 11:19. An interesting description of Jesus. For John came neither eating and drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of God, son of man rather, Jesus came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Here, John the Baptist is, is sort of condemned for his disciplined life, his ascetic life. While Jesus is accused of being a glutton. We're in good company. Now, I'm not critiquing the disciplined life of John the Baptist, but so often Christians are portrayed, caricatured in this way, sanctimonious, teetotaling, party poopers, judgmental, pharisaical, that kind of John the Baptist thing. And extreme abstinence can be as unhelpful as extreme indulgence. In fact, we've got a friend who, who became quite obsessed with fasting, And basically, whenever he was reading his Bible on a daily basis, if there was something to do with fasting or prayer or whatever, that was like a trigger, a kickstart for him to say, I need to fast. And he had the best motivations, but it just sort of was beginning to destroy his family life, really, because, you know, he's got kids and how do you fit in meals and all that kind of stuff. And and so the obsession that way can be just as bad as the obsession the other way. One of the old uh, church fathers, Cassian, said, it's an old saying that extremes meet, for the extreme of fasting comes to the same end as overeating does. And so in contrast to John, in the best Hebrew tradition, Jesus clearly enjoyed good times with people. He enjoyed feasting. He had a healthy relationship with food and drink. And if we want the same, I think there need to be seasons of feasting. And I think the main reason is because feasting is not something to be done on your own. It's not a secret guilty pleasure, but rather feasting is a communal activity. Food and drink is a way of uh, celebrating life and all that God has done for us. And so feasting, hospitality, community, there's something very much of God about these things that births in us a greater awareness of our relationship with the food and drink. We eat differently when we have people for dinner, don't we? You know, we we engage with food differently when we have guests. And so, as Jameson says again, eating good food is a pleasure, but sharing good food with guests brings delight. And I'm not talking about going to excess. I'm just saying that in a thoughtful and celebratory way, feasting needs to be part of our uh, growing self-control. Because when we do that, We have to consider others. We have to put other people before ourselves. And even the act of of saying grace before a, a meal together is part of that. It brings an awareness of others and a thankfulness with others. But as we sort of come into land, as we sort of begin to think about jetting out... um, ...another way of learning this business of self-control is to follow Jesus into the desert, fasting. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he spends 40 days in the wilderness, and that's obviously where we get the practice of Lent from. And for those 40 days, he goes without food. He fasts, he abstains from food. Now, we don't know what was fully going on in that period of 40 days, but what we can imagine is this was preparation for a lifetime of ministry. And therefore, 
as he was fully human, remember that, he was fully human, he was, this, this thing of self-control was being developed within him. Because it's at the end of the 40 days that Satan, the serpent, comes to tempt Jesus. And remember, this isn't Satan dressed in a red devil costume with horns and a fork, right? He's much more subtle and nuanced and beguiling than that. And Satan here uses exactly the same tactic with the second Adam as he did with the first. To use food as a means to Jesus' downfall. If you are the son of God, Satan says, command these stones to become bread. But having spent 40 days fasting, learning self-control, Jesus is able to succeed where the first Adam failed. It is written, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Please note, he also overcomes pride and greed through that time in the desert as well. So here... There are several things going on. First of all, Jesus is redeeming what Adam lost. As a complete human being, empowered by the Spirit, Jesus demonstrates an ability to overcome temptation and he re-establishes a good, healthy God relationship with food. And he basically says, it's the internal identity stuff which is important. That's what we live on, the Word of God. And because Jesus did it, it means we can too. He gives us a model to emulate, a practice to learn, a challenging way to address this vice. I would just put a a note of caution in there and just say that before Jesus went into the desert, he was baptised. And during his baptism, there was an amazing affirmation of Jesus by the Father. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And what I would say is that there is such a link between our identity and food that we need to know that we are loved if we're going to have a good, healthy relationship with food. We need to know the tenderness and deep love of the Father for each one of us before we even begin to think about this idea of getting food right. But fasting is a way of developing self-control, a healthy relationship with food. Previous generations called it buffeting the flesh, which is an interesting phrase, deliberately choosing to go without something, which in an age of excess is radical countercultural stuff. Through fasting, we learn how much of these things have got a hold on our lives. Have we become too reliant upon them? Can we begin to learn a different pattern? We haven't got time to go into it now, but there are obviously different types of fast. 40 days of Lent. There are still five weeks to go before Easter, so it's not too late to start a Lent fast. Giving up something for one day a week, or one of the monastic ways of fasting would be simply to eat modestly at set times of the day. That appeals to me, (laughs) that kind of fasting. To eat at set times of the day, but eat modestly. So, final thoughts. In a food-obsessed culture, the challenge for each of us is to develop a healthy and godly relationship with food and drink, one that avoids the extremes of gorging and starving and emulating the Master Jesus in a life of abundance through both feasting and fasting can engender that fruit of self-control. 
And I think because Lent is so linked with food and Jesus abstaining in the desert, it's an ideal time, not to, just to give up something for Lent, but to address a heart issue, gluttony, and maybe to kickstart a better, redeemed, more self-controlled relationship with food. The final words to Christopher Jameson from the monastery once again. Awareness. The avoidance of impulse eating. Choosing to eat enough but never more than is needed. Always keeping in mind other people as being part of one's eating experience. Learning these skills will help us to tackle the other demons that plague us. As we begin to address this, it starts a process going in us where we want to become more mature, loved, loving disciples of Jesus. And as I say, for me, that's what I'm trying to do as we walk towards Easter. Just one little thing, could it change? Maybe for you, that's the challenge too. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we confess our weakness in this area. Lord, thank you for the privilege that we have around us. But forgive us, Lord, where we indulge the flesh too much. Help us to learn that discipline of self-control, not, not just to demonstrate good practice, but so that you can birth something new and wonderful and Jesus-shaped in our lives. Help us, Lord, to reflect you because we worship you first and foremost. Thank you, Lord. Amen.